Well, I am lucky enough to have a few more minutes with John Lyle. Uh, I'm going to call him John, Dr. John Lisley. So this is, you know, this is the end of the story. We didn't quite get to the end of the story in our main interview, but this is really cool because this leads into the MK Ultra stuff. And I know you're working on a book for that. So we're already promoing a book you haven't written on a book that hasn't even come out yet. So this is very exciting. This is all very ethereal here. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm, I've been very fortunate in that this year, 2023, um, I've been given a grant by the National Endowment of the Humanities to actually write this book on MKUltra, oh, cool. but also kind of the consequences. You yeah. know, uh, one of the main focuses of this book is going to be the victims of MKUltra and how they're trying to seek justice. How are they trying to sue the CIA or, you know, what are the consequences of it after yeah. it happens? So the book is about MK Ultra and the consequences. So I'm working on that right now. So it's <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because there's so again it, it, the OSS ties right into that. And there's a couple. I'm trying to I'm trying to close up some of the narrative noops, loops that we hit early on uh, because you, you, truth drugs, right? I want to briefly talk about truth drugs, mm -hmm. which you mention in in this book because this leads us almost directly into the MKUltra experiments. This is, again, the precursor for it. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of strange because there was this drug you talk about called a scopolamine? Scopolamine? Scopolamine. And this was strange because this was used in the early 20s in court cases. And basically it was like an mm -hmm. early truth serum that kind of worked, mm -hmm. but then <laughs> judges were kind of like, yeah, we don't, this isn't, okay, this isn't cool. And so this idea kind of struck level and he was like, okay, we gotta make, we're gonna work on a truth serum here. It's gotta fit four criteria. It's gotta be able to be administered unwittingly, put people in a talkative mood, be not addictive or harmful, and also have no suspicion of being drugged. So this, th mm -hmm. that, you know, that real life case kind of makes them think, okay, there's gotta be a truth serum out here and we've gotta come up with it, but it does have to fit our criteria. So this is where this kind of starts. Yes, it is. There, like you mentioned, there's this guy in the 1920s, Dr. Mm -hmm. Robert House, who had administered scopolamines to some patients, and he kind of uh, inferred that maybe it gets them talking more because sometimes whenever he administered it, they would say things to him that they otherwise probably yeah. wouldn't have. And so he, he joins a bunch of court cases, administering this to people who are suspected of committing crimes, conducting interrogations with it. And you can see how in World War II, Something like a truth drug would be especially important because if you're an intelligence organization like <laughs> right, the OSS yeah. and you're performing and you're performing interrogations, yeah. how do you make sure that the people you're interrogating are actually telling right. you the truth? Well, if you have a truth drug, that's a powerful weapon you have yeah. in your hands. And so Stanley Lovell is um, hiring people to experiment with some of these supposed truth drugs. There's not only scopolamine, but one of the main ones is THC acetate, which is kind of like the main psychoactive ingredient right. in marijuana. So he basically hires people to slip this into cigarettes, give it to people, and see if they'll start incriminating themselves. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. They they start doing that, and it's funny because they turn to marijuana, and you know it, the guy they have, Henry Enslinger, was the he worked for the Bureau of Nar Narcotics and was in charge of a national campaign vilifying marijuana. But then on the mm -hmm. other side, he's kind of working with with uh, the OSS to develop a truth serum with THC as the main ingredient. And the guy who you're talking about injecting cigarettes uh, was none other than George White, who we kind of mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. who's a wacky character who appears in the OSS and then later has a big role in MKUltra mm -hmm. with Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, but he gets to start here kind of injecting THC with a hypodermic needle into cigarettes and then giving them to mob bosses to see if they'll talk, which it kind of, it works, but it doesn't work really. 
Yeah, well, th that's the difficult things about a supposed truth drug. There are certain drugs that can get people to lower their inhibitions and perhaps become more talkative. It's been known for thousands of years that alcohol does this. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's plied with drinks is probably has lower inhibitions and might talk more. The difficulty is, how can you guarantee that what they're saying is the truth? Right. You might get someone to talk, but how do you know what they're saying is the truth? Um, this is the problem with torture as well. Right. You can torture someone, and if you torture them, they're probably going to say anything to make the pain stop. They'll probably say a lot of stuff. How do you know what they're saying is actually true, or are they just saying something to make you stop? <laughs> so that, right. that's kind of the difficulty you run into. Yeah, well, there's interesting. I think it's George White. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe it's him because he's kind of a burly guy. Uh, or maybe it was the the Mastodon. I forget I forget which character it was. But he basically said that if you want to get people to talk, if you want to get a woman to talk, you basically take her breasts and slam it in a drawer. And if you want to get a man to talk, you take a hammer to his penis. Now, I am not a professional interrogator, but I will say I think those techniques probably work. I know they'd work on me. <laughs> yeah, this is actually George White's kind of accomplice okay, uh, okay. named Ike, Ike Feldman, okay. Ike Feldman. But he, yeah, he was starting to work with George White eventually on some of these supposed truth drugs. And he said, this stuff is great because the old methods we had to do was abuse people. We would have to, <laughs> like you said, put, put the, whatever in a drawer and slam it and hurt them. But he said, now with this truth drug, if it actually works, all you have to do is just slip something into their drink or into the cigarette. And maybe we can do that without having to abuse people. Yeah, I think even a penis in a drawer would work. Basically, if you have a drawer or a hammer, <laughs> I think you can kind of pull any of these techniques. I mean, it's kind of why, it, you know, joking aside, I don't think I could ever be a spy because if you really were threatening my genitals, I will tell you everything you need to know. I mean, I'm just, I'm not cut out for it, man. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not cut out for it. Uh, but yeah, but the truth drug, it makes things so much simple if it existed. I love that it was marijuana and it didn't really work. Uh, but they kind of hoped that it would. Then LSD came on the scene and mm -hmm. MK Ultra, and that's a story for another time. But that was the evolution, which is really interesting. But, you know, we've talked, to, you know, we started out by saying the OSS was only around for a couple of years. It was 1942 mm -hmm. to 45, I believe. Basically mm -hmm. the run of America's evolve, involvement in World War II. So the OSS comes to, you know, comes to an end in 1945. Donovan goes back to become to his law practice and ends up becoming an ambassador to Thailand. Stanley Lovell, you know, takes care of his his wife who's sick, uh, but he ends up, you know, starting his own chemical company and mm -hmm. and going on. Uh, but you know, at the end of this, you know, we kind of teased the how it's you know how it started, how it's going. Lovell started out really wanting to use engineering and and science for the good of humanity, and at the end, you know, right at this point, I mean, he's basically in 1945, anything to end the war, um, you know. Uh, this killing millions of people, dropping the the H-bomb in Hiroshima, that's fine as long as we can get this war over with. So he goes through quite a change. And war, it, and, and this, the pressures around it, being in it and ending it and stopping uh, evil or the other army, it puts the pressures on people that I don't think you can really understand unless you're in it. I think that's exactly what happened to Stanley Lovell. Once he got close to this thing and saw people being tortured and killed and recognized how gruesome war actually is, to him, in his mind, it, it sort of became justified to end it as soon as possible by any means necessary, because if you end it sooner, 
that just means less people are going to have to suffer those terrible consequences. Um, I think there's also a personal element in here for Stanley Lovell in particular, because before the atomic bombs are dropped on Japan, his son is in the Navy mm -hmm. and is probably going to be deployed to a mainland invasion of Japan and might die. Mm -hmm. And so he has a real personal incentive to want to end this war as soon as possible by whatever means necessary, because his own son might die if it continues to go on for much longer. So Stanley Lovell, by the end of the war, is advocating, even though the U.S. doesn't do this, that we engage in biological warfare, mm -hmm. chemical warfare. Mm -hmm. He's in favor of dropping the atomic bombs on Japan as well. Um, really anything to end the war sooner rather than later. Yeah, there's lots of biological wars and chemical warfare that, that you touch on in the book that, I didn't, that we didn't quite get into. Um, but it is... It is kind of strange because under the into the fog of war, as they say, you can understand these arguments, right? Because he's saying if we if we poison a bayonet and, you know, gouge a, a soldier and tear him apart and they die of infection, is that better than if we drop and we blow him up with an incendiary bomb strapped to a dog or something, right? I mean, like, <laughs> like he's really kind of making these strange arguments where it's kind of the same thing. It's an equation and we're kind of coming to the same answer, but one is a little, I mean, that's his job. His job is to make devices that either kill people or help you get information to then kill them later in some roundabout way. I, I'm oversimplifying it, I'm, I'm aware. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I can kind of see where these ends justify the means kind of work under those under those circumstances. Well, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's one of the big things I want to do in this book is that there are several different perspectives on how the United States should react in this war. Stanley Lovells is one of them, but I also give other perspectives of people who didn't want to use atomic bombs or biological or chemical weapons. The whole point that I'm trying to get across here is I want people to see and to have empathy for these people. You don't have to agree with them, but can yeah. you understand why they might argue this point? You don't have to agree with the point, but can you really yeah. understand why someone might argue that? So I want readers to have empathy for those for those positions, which hopefully comes across in the book. <laughs> no, it comes across it comes across in the book for sure. It's tricky, uh, and this is a I'll, I'll just say this briefly because it's a whole another conversation. But we live in a very strange time in the United States where everyone's interested in hot takes, cool, snarky tweets, and your news kind of boiled up in a headline. And that is not how any of this works. That's not how history works. You need context. You need to know the story. There are always two sides to every story, which I've made a point to always listen to. They're not always right. Sometimes there's a clear winner, but there's always two sides and they both have merit. And you need that to understand something as complicated as war and it's complicated as uh, something as the American intelligence system. So I think you do that well. The unfortunate thing is no one reads anymore. But yes, you do a great job in the book. Uh, well, that's the point of coming on podcasts like this. I get to talk about it even if they don't read it. <laughs> right. Hopefully people will listen to us for an hour plus. Uh, so I want to tie this up really quickly because, you know, you have Stanley Lovell. He ends up, you know, leaving. Uh, he leaves the OSS. He ends up when the CIA is kind of brought online, he does do consulting with them. But he ends up filing a bunch of patents for shoes, which is totally random. Uh, and in the end, Alan Dulles asks him if they should have an R&D branch. And he's and Lovell says yes. And that this is kind of the epilogue where then they say, OK, then they create the technical services uh, staff that Sidney Gottlieb led. And that leads into the whole that leads into the next chapter, the next you know world of all this. Uh, but before we close there, because that's the end of the story, right? Like that's how we get to our sequel. That's where, <laughs> you know, you see Jason rise from from the grave. You know, there's going to be another Friday the 13th movie. Right. But I got to close on this. 
not only because it also offers me an opportunity for another shameless plug, but Lovell became obsessed with Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and even subscribed to the Oxfordian theory that Edward de Vere wrote his plays. He -hmm. didn't believe in the Francis Bacon, which I've always thought was a very interesting argument. But I did a whole fascinating nouns episode early on about uh, Shakespeare, not really that Shakespeare did not write his plays. And it was actually a pseudonym for somebody else, uh, which ties with that guy ties Oak Island and the Winchester Mystery House into Shakespeare. So it's a three-part wild early episode that might be hard to follow now because I've, I've gotten a lot better since then. But it is a crazy story. But that shows you that not only is that it was he uh, into, not only did he create his own conspiracy theories through his work at the OSS, but he was also really into them as well. And I love this as a, as a little epilogue to the story. Yeah, you know, it was so strange. I had been talking to, I think it was his grandson again, Mm. And his grandson told me, you know, in later life, Stanley Lovell got really interested in Shakespeare. And I thought, well, this is, is a random, you know, this guy who's totally. an inventor and a chemist. And so I was looking at archives all over the country trying to figure out where I might find more about this. And I found in this one random archive in Illinois, they had a pamphlet that a person named Stanley Lovell had written that basically is arguing that Shakespeare didn't really write his plays. And I thought for a long time, is this the same Stanley Lovell? It turns out it was, which I never would have known had I not talked to his grandson. So I'm so glad that I did. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, this is a this is a great little tidbit. And this is my favorite parts of history are when you see the full contours of a character and not just a caricature. And this is a perfect example of that, right? Because it in some ways shows you how his mind works. And there's a whole nother side to him, right? And and I love that. And, you know, you also talk about, in, in, and a lot of inconclusions here. This is like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Like there's five <laughs> different endings to this podcast, right? But there's this really cool thing where you talk about the connections. And I didn't know this between Lovell, Frank Olson, uh, and the CIA, uh, mm-hmm. when this Frank Olson is famously the, the um, MK Ultra CIA agent who jumps to his death, uh, who's the subject of Earl Morris's documentary Wormwood. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, this is a fascinating story, but I didn't know Stanley Lovell was involved in that whole thing, which is really cool. But also you kind of outlined the similarities between Lovell and Gottlieb. You kind of did it earlier mm-hmm. on in the podcast, but I just want to quickly talk about that. You know, they both they both wanted to attack uh, dictators in weird ways. Gottlieb mm-hmm. wanted to attack Castro's beard. Um, Lovell wanted to attack Hitler's mustache. We didn't talk about either one of those, but it, it happened. Trust me, people. Uh, They're both chemists. They both were heads of their R&V divisions. They were both involved in assassination plots. They both pursued truth drugs. Uh, they both over- oversaw the creation of gadgets and other wizardry. Um, but as you mentioned, and this is the important part that I think you try to, to hit home here, is that one served during war, one served during peace, and the public saw those completely differently. And I think, again, we come back to context, and you as a historian, that's really your job, is to give people context behind all this wacky stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll I'll say as a historian too, I I know how important it is to try to give context. I want people to have historical empathy for these figures and try to, if you don't agree with them, at least understand why they might do something. But also as a historian, I know it's so hard to divorce ourselves from our present context. So when we're looking back at a Stanley Lovell or a Sidney Gottlieb, you know, the idea is that sure, we can inhabit their context and try to understand their perspective from their eyes. But how often can we really do that? It's really hard to do that just because we live in our own context. So there's right. always this kind of internal struggle among any historian, I think, of how, how do I try to encapsulate the context? But also, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing this book 
because I think it's an interesting story. But I, I mean, I'm choosing stories that appear in this book, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm certainly influenced in choosing right. the stories that appear by my own context. So it, it's like, well, you know, my context affects what I'm interested in. So how does it does, it, <laughs> does that, that shape what we're reading into this stuff? So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm fascinated with all this kind of philosophy of history, but uh, yeah, that's some of the ramblings of a historian, I guess. <laughs> well, even the objective is subjective at times is basically what you're saying, which uh, I think is true of history. You are the editor because you are the one writing the book. Uh, but I mean, that's that's the unfortunate reality of reality is even the truth can be there's no real truth unless your video, you know, we have video recording of everything. And even that's based on where you put the camera and the angle <laughs> and everything. Right. So there, there's no objective. There is no truth. So I don't know what we're doing. You're in the wrong business. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you wrote a great book. And thank you so much for taking this extra time out for me. This is wonderful. Yeah. Th thank you. I had a really great time. I appreciate it.